You are listening to Sunday Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and executive director of the Institute and your host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video for the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, consoler, spirit of truth, present in all places and filling all things. The treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us. Cleanse us of all stain and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm-hmm. Welcome back to all of our participants here. Annie Mitchell, how are you today? I am good. Happy almost liturgical new year for the Roman Catholic Church. Yes, we're getting wrapped, ramped up, <laughs> wrapped up, ramped up for, uh, we're going to wrap up something, that's for sure today, and we're going to ramp up for the solemnity of our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the Universe, and as is currently called in the Novus Ordo calendar, yes, the Feast of Christ the King, this coming Sunday. So uh, I had to remind myself, Annie, because this feast is not on the Byzantine calendar, right. and I had to say, when was this feast? When was it? This is nothing bad. I'm just saying it's just it's not on our calendar. I had to go remind myself when it was instituted, and uh, and then of course you can ask yourself why would the church put this feast on the calendar and go do the research. It's very interesting because during the reign of Pius the Pius the eleventh, Pius the eleventh, it was on the the calendar at a time. You got to say when was Pius the eleventh alive? I'm just gonna shoot it out there, Annie. I'm going to put out there 1920, 1930. Am I right? Yep, I really don't right know. Right in there. Right in there. 1925 what? is when this was instituted. 1925. And so what's going on in 1925, right? Wow. The World War One is, is just ended. and But there's a bigger thing going on even, I mean, bigger than World War One. That is the loss of the papal states. Yeah. Yeah. Is now kind of, we're done. And so there is during this time period, this kind of, establishment or effort by the church to remind people that while the Pope is not a political superpower as he was, that the church still holds a prominent place in society and Christ's presence in society is not to be discounted. I have a beautiful quote here from uh, the encyclical Quas Primus by Pope Pius XI. He says this, when once men recognize, both in private and in public life, that Christ is king, society will at last receive the great blessings of real, of real liberty, well-ordered discipline, peace, and harmony. So in other words, what's wrong with society? And why have we just seen more people be killed in a war than we've ever seen in the history of mankind? Because you stole the papal states. <laughs> no, no, because because well, the, the society, mean, yeah, because yeah. society is now post enlightenment rejected the primacy of God in governing yep. this thing down here, right? We okay. no longer have a Louis the Ninth kind of uh, leadership yeah. in exactly. Europe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Moreover, the annual and universal celebration of the feast of Christ, of the kingship of Christ will draw attention to the evils which anti-clericalism has brought upon society and drawing men away from Christ. Stop. 
okay? I heard too much recently about clericalism. Yeah. Here, the problem is anti-clericalism, which I would say is probably really our problem today. You know, and I'm going to stop for a second and make a comment regarding the traditional way in which priests were greeted historically in the church. I mean, physically, you say hello to a priest. You can walk up, hey, Father Joe, high five him, you know, fist bump. And I say, please, for God's sake, never fist bump me. I, I don't like fist bumping, okay? I promise, Father, I will not fist bump you. Uh, <laughs> traditionally, you kiss the priest's hands, not because I'm worthy of being kissed. It's not my hands, the hands of Christ. Yeah. Yes? There's a beautiful the Filipino people and maybe even the Mexican people uh, would touch the priest's hand to their forehead. Very beautiful. These are ways in which we reverence Christ in the church. And the reality of our baptism and eventual ordination, that we greet each other as we greet Christ himself. Yeah? So here you go. Anti-clerics are brought among society and draw all men away from Christ. And will also, this feast will also do much to remedy them. While nations insult the beloved name of our Redeemer by suppressing all mention of it in their conferences and parliaments, <laughs> nothing new under the sun, we must all the more loudly proclaim his kingly dignity and power, all the more universally affirm his rights. I will give a little plug here for our upcoming poli-sci course at the ICC, yeah, oh, Catholic yes. political theory, in which we state very clearly that, yes, the church has a voice in the political realm. And no, we will not remain silent. And being led by Pius XI, we will proclaim it loudly that Christ is the king, not Joe Biden or Nancy Pelosi. By the way, I would like for the first time here to make a public announcement and invitation that, that uh, we offer now to the President of the United States, uh, Joe Biden, an opportunity and, and by the way, by extension, also Nancy Pelosi, Pelosi, that we offer a free course in Catholic political theory. You are invited, Joe and Nancy, to come to the ICC. We will offer this free of charge so that you can learn what it means to be a Catholic in the public sphere. Wouldn't yes? it be awesome if they took you up on that? Oh, my gosh. It's free of charge. I mean, not that they have any need of money, my money or your money. Yeah, but yeah, for real. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> here we go. Yeah. Um, Pope Pius XI, Quas Primus, this is the feast day this coming Sunday to launch our the new calendar the liturgical year in Roman Catholic tradition, very beautiful tradition. And I point people to also Dr. Timothy O'Donnell's talk, Christ the King, Christus Vinci, Christus Regnat, Christus Imperat, that we have here on our website, the ICC, beautiful talk by Dr. Timothy O'Donnell on the subject of Christ the King. But for now, let us look into the biblical text that we have before us. Get out your Bibles let's and let's uh, let her rip, Annie. All right. The uh, first reading for Mass this weekend is from the second book of Samuel, chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Our responsorial psalm is taken from Psalm 122. The gospel is Luke chapter 23, verses 35 through 43. And the epistle is St. Paul's letter to the Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. Nice. You ready to open up your Bible to 2 Samuel? I am. I'm right here. 2 Samuel chapter 5. Yep. And we're reading verses 1 through 3. Let her rip. 
All right, here we go. In those days, all the tribes of Israel came to David in Hebron and said, Here we are, your bone and your flesh. In days past, when Saul was our king, it was you who led the Israelites out and brought them back. And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel and shall be commander of Israel. When all the elders of Israel came to David in Hebron, King David made an agreement with them there before the Lord, and they anointed him king of Israel. Is it Hebron or Hebron? Hebron. Is it Hebron? Should well, I? Have a hard mark there. It's Hebron. I always say Hebron. But anyways, here we are. Oh, Hebron. You know why? Because why? here in the Cincinnati area, uh, on the other side of the river, is Hebron, Kentucky. Well, because it's, so it's right that's there. why it I pronounce it the way that I do. <laughs> yeah, it says Hebron, <laughs> but I always pronounce it Hebron, but I don't know. Anyways, don't know. there you go. Well, either way, we can, you know, we'll make it. Now that we know that there are going to be alternate pronunciations here, we'll just go with it. Sure. <laughs> Come on, let's get well, into it. Well, actually, here. why don't we start with that then, now that we're talking about it. I wanted to know where Hebron, Hebron is and why yeah. David was there. Okay, good question. It is just south of Jerusalem and just west of the Dead Sea. So imagine that you got the Sea of Galilee up north. You got the Jordan River. You got the Dead Sea. You got Jerusalem, which is the the, the throne city of what tribe? The head city of which tribe, Annie? What tribe? Yeah, Judah inherits that whole area, right? And yeah. so the yeah, answer to your question, right? Why is David in Hebron because, or Hebron, sorry, Hebron. Why is David there? Because it's this where they lived. Okay, this was in, so I, I actually, I wrote, in, I, I knew you were going to ask this question because we always talk about geography here at the ICC. In fact, let's pull up that map right now. You can see it right here, Dead Sea, Jerusalem, Hebron. So I just wrote down a couple of passages, which I think might help us. So that's Genesis chapter 13. Okay. I do believe this is the first time that Hebron, Hebron is mentioned in your Bible, Genesis chapter 13. That's why it's always handy to have, you know what, we do this and it's important to stop and do it. I'm going to grab a book. Hold on one second. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Lovely little concordance. Oh, the concordance. And I wanted, yeah. so we haven't pulled out a concordance in a while, so I'm going to go ahead and pull it out now. And this is Strong's Concordance. Now look, Strong's Concordance is a concordance referencing back to the King James, I do believe. But nevertheless, nevertheless, most of your words are going to be the same. You know, sure. the word king, okay? Or you have some, so depending on how it's more or less useful, but it's, here's what you can do with the Strong's Concordance is you can go pick up a nice little, see, look at this, even right there, I have behind me another concordance, right? Oh yeah. That is it. a concordance. This is actually not bad. The Catholic Bible Concordance by Emmaus Road. Not bad. This is, this is helpful. There are two types of concordances. We're going to do this right now because this is why we do these studies, Annie. It's yeah. not just so I can give a homily. I shouldn't be giving homilies. Here, SGR, we're supposed to be giving you the tools. So there you go. You're going to have tools at your, at your disposal. What is a concordance? Number one, we'll show you two different types of concordances. A word concordance and a textual concordance. A word concordance, you can look up words in your right. You remember, wait a minute. I rem- When's the first time Hebron was mentioned in your Bible? Well, you're going to look up Hebron and you're going to find that it's mentioned all these times, right? I pulled out mm-hmm. my strong, say, use it all the time. That's why I travel with, like when I go to the Holy Land and stuff. Oh, yeah. Very helpful. Mm-hmm. But um, this is actually a nice little concordance that references the RSV. In other words, it 
the words translations go back to the RSV. So maybe even a little bit more helpful to you if you want to buy this. There's a foreword by Scott Hahn. I had forgotten he had done this, but um, here it is and it's helpful. So if I look up Hebron in here, it's going to show you all the times that Hebron is mentioned in your Bible, which is a significant number of times. Here we go. Hebron. Okay. And it's going to go from there all the way down, all the way down, all the way down, all the way down. Okay. So the last time is in the Old Testament, 1 Maccabees chapter 5, verse 65. But wow. lots of times. Why is it helpful? Well, Annie, I knew you were going to ask me where Hebron was. And so I was like, wait a minute, scratch the old noggin up there, Father Hezekiah. I know Abraham, Hebron. Yeah, and sure enough, I was right. Okay, so here we go. Genesis chapter 13, verse 18. So Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt in, uh, by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So this, this becomes the kind of like before Jerusalem, Hebron becomes kind of like the center of where the people are hanging out, where God's people, the family is going. And you can also look back to Genesis 23. Genesis 23, verse 1. 1 and 2, Sarah lived 127 years. And Sarah died at this place that is Hebron in the land of Canaan. And then in the following verses, Abraham has to deal with the guy who lives in the area, who's a Hittite whose name was Ephron, verse 10, mm -hmm. Ephron. And he ends up buying from Ephron. Well, he ends up being given. Well, he buys, is given, forms a contract with this guy. Anyways, ends up with his cave and buries Sarah there. So, of course, you don't abandon your loved ones. And so they're always returning to this area. This is, you can go there today. You can see the tomb of the patriarchs there that all of them ended up getting buried there and so forth. So why is your answer is why is David in Hebron? Well, there you got it. He's, that's his family. That's the family home, you know, and you can look at second Samuel now back to where we were. Second Samuel chapter. I always go to first Samuel and then I get mess up. Chapter three, second Samuel chapter three. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger. The house of Saul became weaker and weaker. The sons and, and sons were born to David at Hebron. Hebron. Yeah, there he is. So we always think of Jerusalem as Jew as the center of Judah and as the throne yeah. city and all that stuff. But this is before Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem. Um and uh and and before you know all of that. So this is like the old time family home. That's just, that's my long answer to your short question. It was just interesting to me that that was where David was anointed king. Very mm -hmm. significant uh, location for many Absolutely. reasons, clearly. So what was actually going to be my first question though, and, and maybe we could, since you've already, I mean, you've given us a little bit already, but a little primer yeah. on David and kind of what leads, I mean, yeah, you're looking at me crazy. Like, is it a really, primer or a primer? I always say primer. 
tomato, tomato, Hebron, Hebron, Brimmer. I know. We got all kinds of. All right, good. Yeah, I what, thought you were looking question? at me crazy. Like, are you kidding me? You want a primer on David? Like, that's going to be impossible to do in yeah. an hour or less. But, you yeah. know, how it came about, I think it's important for the context of, of Christ the King, the feast, how it came about that he was going to become king. Just as a little nice. refresh. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Let's do it. And I, I, I will say that this, that's an excellent question. And actually a question that I think is, is very important for us as Catholics today celebrating the feast or getting ready to celebrate the feast that we understand the foundations, right? And so, yes, your pastor, your priest can preach his homily this coming Sunday on the importance of Jesus as our king. But biblically speaking, we need to understand the, the background foundation. And so a really important uh, couple, couple, couple of verses I would just point to to begin with, Annie, is back to Deuteronomy. Well, maybe we'll work back to Deuteronomy, actually, and say, how is it that, your question is, how is it that David became king? What's the story, right, of him becoming king? So let's take a look there at First and Second Samuel. And I don't really have my answer to you prepared, exactly, except that to go back to First Samuel, chapter 1, verse 1, or chapter 1, verse, well, all of chapter 1 and chapter 2 where we hear of the story of Samuel's parents. Yeah. And you can see verse nine, uh, have this chapter one, verse 19. They arose early in the morning to worship before the Lord, then went back to their house at Ramah and Elkanah knew Hannah. That's the parents of Samuel, um, his wife. And the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son and she called his name Samuel. Okay, and so there's you want to read a little bit of the story of Samuel. It's very beautiful right there in the whole and the, the following chapters of how Samuel ends up sleeping in the tent of meeting next to the Ark of the Covenant. God speaks to him. It's a very beautiful story. But of course, during this time, uh, during the life of Samuel, there becomes a crisis. Now, Samuel is like a bridge figure. He's like a, a bridge figure between the time of the judges and the time of the kings. So in our minds, let's get our big picture together. And that is Israel comes out of Egypt during the time of the Exodus, 40 years of wandering in the desert. They finally come into the promised land and God establishes judges to judge the people that it because why? Well, they're like my kids. They're always in a fight and they're like, dad, he did that. Dad, he did that. So they come back to the land and it's the first thing that happens. And so the Lord establishes judges. So you can look at your, the book of Judges. Just a you know, not too far back on your in your Bibles, and you'll see chapter one, verse one of Judges. You there, Annie? I am getting there, there, right? Judges yes, chapter I'm one, there. verse one. After the death of Joshua, now you'll remember Joshua led God's people into the promised land. Yeah. So he dies, and what next? The people of Israel inquired of the Lord, "Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against the? You know, who's going to be our leader?" Right. Mm -hmm. And so God establishes judges throughout this whole story. There's a, a consistent theme. In chapter 2, verse 16, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the power of those who plundered them. And yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed down before that. So for that. okay, this is story. Over and over again, judges are established. And we've got to talk on the on the book of judges at the ICC. You can go listen to it. And Samuel ends up as the kind of the last of the judges, the first of the kings, 
Okay, he's right there in the middle. And the story of that transition is given to us in in 1 Samuel chapter 8. This is a critical chapter in your Bible. So you're going to get your highlighters out and highlight with me, make notes. When Samuel became old, he made sons his sons judges over Israel. The name of the firstborn was Joel, and the name of the second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel. So you can think, we were just talking about that back, remember, in first in Judges chapter 1. Joshua dies, and all the people come. Oh, Lord, who's going to lead us up, right? So now this is the second time this, this happens again, right? Yep. Behold, you're old, and your son's not walking your ways. Now appoint for us a king to govern us like all the nations. Oh, boy. Yeah. Okay, and yeah, Annie, you know the story here, right? Mm-hmm. What's the problem here? That they want a king? This is not the problem. They want a the king like is, all the nations. Like all the, like all the nations, exactly. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to govern us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, hearken to the voice of the people in all that they say to you. Stop. Look at me. Look at me. I ask you a question I like to ask people, and that is, who is the first king of Israel? Who is the first person who is king of God's people? A lot of people say David was. They say, no, actually, Saul. Some people say Saul. And I'll say, no, actually, Samuel. Because we're going to find out Samuel actually was kind of king over the people. But no, the answer is right here in the verse, for they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So who is the first king of God's people? God is. God. And the reason I'm making a big to, to do about this is when we're talking about the establishment of the feast of Christ, the king, we have to understand the divine institution, which is the kingship of God's people, right? That what we find in the Old Testament king is a restoration of God's original plan. And that is that which was given to Adam when he was made king over creation, when he was given dominion in the end of chapter one right? Dominion over creation, that dominion which he abused. Being in the image and likeness of God, he refused to live in his image and likeness. And so the story out throughout salvation history is this kind of earthquake over whether God is actually going to be king and we are go- whether we are going to live as kings in his image and likeness or not, yeah? We have a series coming up at the Institute Swords and Serpents, where we're going to go through the whole Old Testament, the whole Old Testament in six hours together during Advent. It's coming up shortly at the end of this month. I invite you to join us, and we're going to go through all of the books of the Bible, all of the Old Testament, to watch this earthquake time and time again happen. This is one of the major earthquakes right here, okay? They have rejected, not rejected you from being king, but they have rejected me from king over them, right? Because they want to be like all the other nations. Now, refer, go back now with me to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Keep your hand there in, in, in 1 Samuel. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 17, Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14. When you come to the land, which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around about me. You may indeed set a king over you, him whom the Lord has chosen. Hmm. Yeah, one from among your brethren, you shall set his king over you. You shouldn't put a foreigner, and then it gives some basic rules that they're going to go ahead and go against, which is 
He should not collect horses. He should go back to Egypt. He should not collect wives. All these things, which explicitly ends up happening in the life of Solomon. Okay. But here you go. The Lord predicts it. You will want to have a king over you. And I understand that. But when you do, don't do the one that I choose. Yeah. Yeah. Not the one that you choose. And there's the distinction with what happens now in the story of the transition of power from from the judge king, Samuel, to the so-called first king of Israel, Saul. For we read in chapter 9, verse 1, there was a man of Benjamin. This is first Samuel, chapter 9, verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zior, Zeror son of Bukra, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. Huh? Hmm. Yeah. Got some money and he had a son whose name was Saul. And he was good looking. looking. And he could talk, let me tell you. And when he gets in those debates between the Republicans and the Democrats, he always wins the debate. And man, does he look good up there on stage with oh that boy, makeup and the camera? Pretty, yeah. yeah. So there we go. There they go. They fall, they do that in chapter ten, verse one. Samuel took a vial of oil, poured it on his head, and away you go. And what unravels? Total disaster. Okay. So basically, what happens? The Lord allows the people to do what they're asking, right? And says, "Now you're going to have to live with that guy." And as it turns out, he's a total disaster. In fact, when they come to anoint him. There's a, I want to talk about this in a second. There's multiple anointings to become king of Israel, as we're going to see in the life of Christ also. But the first anointing is with the prophet, and the second is with his family, and the third is with all the nation, right? Oh, okay. And so look at chapter 10, verse 20. Uh, This is the third anointing. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought it and so forth like that, Okay. And I'm in verse 22. So they inquired again of the Lord. Did the man come hither? They can't find him. Okay. As soon as they were going to anoint him king and they can't find him. And look, it says, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. (laughs) So he's handsome. He's wealthy, but he's a coward. And he's scared. Right. And so that ends up being the story of king saul he ends up committing a number of sins including trying to sacrifice alone apart from the priests and um and god re- ends up rejecting him. he also by the way conquers one of the enemies and instead of killing the leader he ends up enslaving him which is a major no-no because they are not to act like the other nations like egypt and enslave people no 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 and so chapter 15 verse 34 then samuel went to ramah and Saul went up to the house of Gibeah and of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord repented that he had made Saul king. And the Lord said to Samuel, how long will I grieve over Saul, seeing that I rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. And I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And now notice this in verse 7. Because here's what happens. Then Jesse then hauls out all his boys and says, look, one after another, here's my oldest, here's my next oldest. And the prophet says, no, none of these are going to work. None of these are the, no, no, no. And he says, don't you have any other sons? Right. And, and Jesse says, well, I got my youngest, you know, weak little 
youngest son and he's out with the, with the sheep because he's gonna they're all working right all the rest of the guys are on vacation hanging around with their dad and they got the little boy out there doing all the work for him he's out there shepherding the people and so verse six when they came he looked on Eliab and thought surely the Lord's anointed is before him but the Lord said to Samuel do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him for the Lord sees not as a man sees, but looks on the, uh, uh, the man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And that's what he sees in King David. And that's who he chooses to shepherd his people. The one who learned to shepherd the flock of his father. So, so, so uh, David ends up um, becoming king at the hand of Samuel. That's wow. my introduction. What do you say? My primer. Your primer. A primer, primer on the... how David became king. There you go. There you go. Um, so we are, I guess, then in in Second Samuel three. This would be that yes. third and final anointing that you were Second, talking about. Exactly. And so, yeah. First, remember this. Then that pattern. The prophet goes to the guy. He anoints him. Mm -hmm. Okay. You can see this, by the way. I wrote this down for you. First Samuel. Chapter 16, take a look. Chapter 16. Then Samuel, sorry, not 16. 13. Am I right? Oh, yeah, 16. Yes. We just saw this right here. We were right there. <laughs> Verse 13. Yeah, first Samuel 16, 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward, right? Mm -hmm. And then second Samuel chapter two, second Samuel chapter two, chapter two, verse four. And, a, and the men of Judah came and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. So now you have that private anointing with the prophet, with the tribe itself, with the family, right? With Judah. Okay. And then finally, second Samuel chapter five, which is the text we have in front of us. You're right to point that out, Annie, that this is, look at this. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, Saul was king over us. And, and, but it was you that let us in and out and so forth like that. And boom, he anoints David a third time. So uh, very important for us because some commentators have pointed out the connection because Jesus also is so-called anointed three times, right? He is named as the chosen one of God. There's three times in which God's voice is audibly spoken, the Father's voice audibly spoken in the New Testament. First at the baptism, remember? baptism of the Lord. The mm -hmm. second time at the right. transfiguration transfiguration right so the first one is the prophet the second time with his closest friends right his closest family if you will right sure. and the third time he is king of israel right on the wow. cross right as he suffers cross, yeah. uh in the garden of gethsemane and then the name is put above him so there's these three anointings if you will uh progression wow. progressions but i would say there's actually four because then of course the jesus of the ascends into heaven yeah. right and sends oh, the holy yeah. spirit upon us right king of not only of israel but king of the of the universe the universe yeah. yeah absolutely um wow. but what was your question Annie? i don't even remember i'm sorry oh well I th you answered it you know 
This is interesting, though, because his David's sorry, just to go back to David and make sure that I have my my timeline correct. So his first anointing was still while Saul was alive, right? Yes. But Saul has died exactly. in the meantime. Exactly. Exactly. But okay. Yeah. So this is important, actually, to our text, because notice what happens. And this is why I love these Bible studies, because we can stop and ask those questions are really important, right? So in those days, all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, here we are. You're born in your flesh. Yeah, I was gonna say, what are the what are they what are they saying there? <laughs> so there's because you have to read the story behind the story, right? And if you know what's going on, just turn with me very quickly. Well, we just looked at it in chapter three, second Samuel chapter three. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. Hmm. Yeah, and that's that war happens before that. I mean, if you go back into First Samuel, as David kind of rises to power. There's this obvious conflict that develops between the two, right? And Saul ends up trying to hunt David and kill him. And so this battle and and division has been taking place about those who are associated with Saul and those who are following David. That comes out there in 2 Samuel chapter 3, and it's only going to be resolved in chapter 5. So what's what's really going on? Well, Saul died, okay? And, and, And yet... He's that's not the end of the story. There's still a battle between the houses. There's guys that rise up to take Saul's place. Okay. And so there's a, a, a kind of a war going on between these two factions, right? The Republicans and the Democrats and the, uh, <laughs> and the between the house of David and the house of Saul. And, and now it becomes apparent that the house of Saul is going to lose. Yeah. It's always happens, isn't it? Like the election happens. Oh yeah. yeah and yeah, and, over and to whoever's, whoever's in power like a senator or a governor will jump and become like if this Democrats gain power, there's Republicans are like, oh, never mind. We want to be Democrats anyways, because we want to win, you know? And yeah. so that's what's going on here. And that is that that they're like, look, we love you, David. When in fact, they've been hunting and trying to kill him the whole time. Um, <laughs> and in the in, in days past, when Saul was our king, it was really you who led us. We know that, okay. So we were trying to let kill you, bygones really, be bygones. Yeah, right? we really were following you because we know that God was with you. You know, um, yeah. you shall. The Lord said to you, David, you shall shepherd my people, right? So, <laughs> so anyway, so they 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 come and they submit to him. And and That's let's just awesome. remember also, by the way, before we move on from this passage, I know we're taking a, a, a bit of time here, but I think it's important to get our bearings both about the kingship of God. And the kingship then of man in the image and likeness of God versus the dictator who enslaves people, right? So there's two types. There's the one that grants freedom and there's the slave master in the image and likeness of Pharaoh. Yeah. Um, But to be anointed literally uh, is to be christened. Yeah. To be messiah in Hebrew or in Greek to be christened. Yeah. To be Christed. Trying to yeah. mess, mess around with those words a little bit so they become more familiar to you because we talk about the Messiah, but it doesn't really mean for us anointed anymore. Like in the sense, I mean, it does mean that, but we forget what it means. Yeah. What does it mean to be anointed? Well, in the Old Testament, the pouring on of oil was a sign of a deeper reality taking place, just like the dunking in water is a sign of a deeper reality taking place, right? The anointing of the king. We see this very, very beautifully, actually, with the anointing of of Saul in 
in First uh, Samuel, where are we? Chapter eight and nine in chapter 10, first Samuel chapter 10, Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you? And look at verse six. Then the spirit of the Lord will come mightily upon you and you shall prophesy with them and be, and, and be turned into another man. Wow. Yeah. That's what holy anointing, chrismation, confirmation does. Right, it fills you up with the life of God. The Spirit of God will mightily come upon you. So important. When we're talking about the New Testament and our understanding of being christened, being Christed, becoming Christians. Jesus, yeah, the word Christ is not his last name. Jesus, the Christ, the Anointed, Jesus, the King. Jesus Christ means Jesus King. Yeah, Jesus. Really, it doesn't mean Jesus King in this first level. It means Jesus anointed. Yeah. Yeah. And because this pouring on of oil was a sign of the deeper reality of who this person is, is revelation that the spirit of God has mightily come upon him as the spirit of God descended upon him at his baptism. Yeah. As we, he was revealed to his family at the transfiguration. Behold, my beloved son. Yeah, as he's revealed as king and the, the breadth and depth of his love for us at the cross, the crucifixion. Yeah, and so um, we need to have those words before us and be able to understand because now it's going to make a big difference for me and you. Are you a Christian? Annie, are you a Christian? I am indeed. That means you've been anointed. You are a king in the king, which means you've been given dominion. A dominion by which you might govern, yeah, and set in order all of the realm around you as Adam was meant to do in the very beginning by loving, by doing what God has done, and that is sharing his life with his beloved. That is our call as Christians. Jesus says that they will know us by our love because this is who we are. We're lovers because we're chrismated, we're christened because that means God's life is within us. And that life is, is, a, is, is an active reality. Like it's not, a well, God's life, I'm going to measure it and put it in a box. God's life is love. It is it's self-giving. And so by the gift of God's life within us, we become self-givers. We become lovers because we're Christians. We're anointed for this purpose. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, uh, and, I'll, and I'll just, I'm going to get ahead of myself. No, I'm going to stop there. We come back to it afterwards. Okay. Well, shall we uh, look at the responsorial psalm just Psalm quickly? 122. Psalm 122. Let us go rejoicing to the house of the Lord. Yeah. I rejoice because they said to me, we will go up to the house of the Lord. And now we have set foot within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city with a compact unity. To it, the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord. According to the decree of Israel, to thanks to the Lord, in it are set up judgment seats, seats to the house of David. Now, Psalm 122. I'm going to flip over there because I should have had it open, but I was reading from my USB, USCCB print off because I had to get that proper translation for you guys that you'll be hearing on Sunday. But 122, what you're going to notice in your Bibles, well, if you have an RSV, your new American probably says the same thing. Notice how it says above your chapter break 
there in your Bible, Andy, what's it say? Um, I am still flipping pages to Psalm, Psalm 122, 122, Annie, faster. Yes. Song of praise and a prayer for Jerusalem, a song of ascent of David. There you go. It's a psalm of ascent, a song of ascent. These psalms are psalms of ascent by which the people of God, would they would sing these psalms as they're ascending up to Jerusalem. Yeah. Cool. When I take people yeah. to the Holy Land, we chant these in our, well, we don't walk up, but we take the bus, you know, but we <laughs> chant the psalms of ascent um here from a your different Bible. kind of caravan <laughs> what's that a different kind of caravan yeah exactly yeah. exactly so there you have it from psalm 120 um Two. onward you see all these beautiful psalms of ascent and i am going to by the way be singing with my family from these psalms for all of our icc friends coming up we're going to record a nice little thanksgiving video for you Cool. To teach you how to sing these Psalms of Ascent according to the ancient Christian tradition. Very beautiful. Nice. I hope you enjoy it because these are supposed to be chanted and beautiful. And these are Psalms which I recommend that you sing in your car on the way to Sunday Mass with your family. You know, if husband's driving, the wife's in the passenger seat, have, have your wife pull out your Bible and sing these Psalms on your way up to the mountain of God, up to Jerusalem, up to the church, right? Be very beautiful. Here's Psalm 122 is one of those Psalms. I will rejoice because they said to me, we will go up to the house of the Lord. And now we have set our foots within your gates, Jerusalem built as a city. And so the Psalms go on to describe how Jerusalem is so beautiful as this microcosm of the whole created order transformed by the grace of God. And what is the response according to the decrees of Israel? To give thanks. In the name of the Lord, to say thank you to Evkaristo, Eucharist. Yeah. What we do as Christians, as anointed ones, is to say thank you because we recognize the gift of God's life that has been poured into us and the city in which we dwell, which is not built out of stone, but by the living stones of God's people gathered together around the Eucharistic table. This, Beautiful. the center of our Feast of Christ the King. Love it. Love it. Of course, I'm going to have to be the one driving so that my husband can do the singing. He's way better at chants. We'll there just... you go. You drive. He can chant. I'll drive. He Ambrose. can chant. Listen we'll to just... St. Ambrose. These are the feet that David washes in spirit when he teaches you how to keep them unsoiled, saying, our feet have been standing in your courts, O Jerusalem. Certainly here feet is to be understood not as the body, but as the soul. For how could a person on earth have a phys have physical feet in heaven? Since Jerusalem, as St. Paul tells us, uh, is in heaven, he also shows us how to stand in heaven when he says, but our abode is in the heaven, the abode of, our, uh, of your behavior, the abode of your deeds, the abode of your faith. Yeah. Wow. So as we go to, to church on Sunday, we, we, should, we should, well, we should sing this. Yeah. We rejoice. Because we have been invited into the house of the king himself, not Jerusalem built out of stone, but Jerusalem built out of the living stones, the saints of God. Love it. I love it. All right. Shall we move on to the gospel? Kind yeah, of an Luke, important gospel passage we have this weekend. Luke, well, it's kind of important. Yeah. <laughs> Luke, Luke chapter 23. Yep. We've been going through Luke here. Now we did a face, fast paced little skip over most of Holy Week. And here we're in the middle of, this, of the crucifixion. But remember, as we drop into this, 
that the church has been preparing for this for months and months and months. We're going all through Luke and through these passages on our way from Galilee to Jerusalem. And now we come to the culmination of all things at the cross of Christ, which ultimately will open to the culmination of the culmination of all things, which is the resurrection. Absolutely. All right. So Luke chapter 23, and we're starting in verse 35. The rulers sneered at Jesus and said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the chosen one, the Christ of God. Even the soldiers jeered at him. As they approached to offer him wine, they called out, if you are king of the Jews, save yourself. Above him, there was an inscription that read, this is the king of the Jews. Now, one of the criminals hanging there reviled Jesus, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The other, however, rebuking him, said in reply, have you no fear of God? For you are subject to the same condemnation. And indeed, we have been condemned justly. For the sentence we received corresponds to our crimes, but this man has done nothing criminal. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He replied to him, Amen, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. One of the most moving, I mean, of, of so many moving scenes that we, we get in, in the, uh, the accounts of the crucifixion, mm. certainly uh, this is up there. So um, just, I mean, so we were in Luke chapter 21 last weekend, Father. So like you said, we skip over most of Holy Week right. to get to this moment in, in the Gospel of Luke. And I mean... You know, as we've been making our way to Jerusalem with Jesus through Luke, you know, we we keep talking about how the kingdom and the jubilee are such huge themes in this gospel. So is there anything just to kind of, you know, start with a little bit of context here? Is there anything that you'd want to highlight in that regard that would be significant to us um, for this feast of Christ the King? Well, we, we've, we've spent a lot of time talking about the scene behind the scene in Luke, right? And the story going on, what's what, what, what the conversation taking place. And it's all about this theme, Annie. It's all about the question of whether Jesus is the Christ. Yeah. And we get that in Luke chapter 23 here, but that kind of comes to a, a, a culmination or I'd say a, a fever pitch, I should say, in Luke chapter 19, verse 37, which is the story of his entrance into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, mm-hmm. right? And notice in Palm Sunday, what are the people chanting? Blessed is the king, right? Blessed is the Messiah. Blessed is the anointed one who comes in the name of the Lord. And so this becomes the center fight, which is going on, which comes to the, uh, the ahead at the crucifixion, right? It comes out. Notice. Luke's focus, and this is where I want to go eventually then to finish what I was talking about earlier about us being christened. This is Luke's focus that he helps us see. The rulers sneered at Jesus. Well, okay, stop. The rulers, right? how many times have we been sitting there talking about the rulers and what they're going back and forth, the Jesus going back and forth, and they're, and they're getting almost a blow, it's a match, and now they finally arrest him, and they put him on the cross, and they sneer, we finally got you, you 
Okay, I won't say anymore. They finally got you because they've been doing this behind his back the whole time. And it came out in the public. They're in the temple. Remember, they're back and forth. These last chapters, back and forth. They're, they're in a fight in public, right? Right. And then they get him and they sneer at him. You got to understand that. Let that word sink in. Okay. They sneer at him because they finally get, or they think they get, what they've been looking for and wanting throughout the whole gospel story. Um, and then anyway, he saved others. He saved others, right? Why? Who are the others? Really? Who are they? Who are they? Because we have just spent the entire gospel, marching through this gospel, watching him do what he prophesied he would do in Luke chapter four, mm-hmm. right? And who was there to watch him do it the whole time? These guys, yeah. right? So when it says he saved others, he was, we, we hear this and we're always, we're looking at the cross and we're very pious Christians. He saved others. He saved himself. And we keep going and looking at the cross. Let the gospel take flesh. Who did he save? I mean, look at look in your gospel. Look, look in the gospel of Luke. Time and time again, whether it's the paralytics or the blind or the whoever in the gospel of Luke is just one after another. It's a big, it's a big healing fest. Yeah. Yeah. And who was there watching him do it? These guys who are sneering at him, right? They saw him heal the blind. They saw him heal the paralytics. They saw him walk on water. They saw him multiply the loads of fishes. They ate the food. Yeah. And now they turn, they turn it all on him. Yeah. Because they haven't come to faith in him at all. Yeah. They, they say, they say he saved others. Let him save himself. And if he is, see, after all this time, if he really is the chosen one and let those words come out of Deuteronomy chapter 17, right? You shall indeed anoint, appoint a king over you. The one whom the Lord has chosen. Yeah, if he really is the chosen one of God. So there's a, one of the ways in which the, the king was called the chosen one of God. Uh, uh, David was chosen, right? Samuel was chosen. Uh, Solomon was chosen by God. These are the chosen ones of God. If he really is the chosen one, the anointed of God, the king, that's what he said, the Christ, right? The chosen one, the Christ of God, the anointed one. If he truly is that one, yeah, then let him save himself. Even the soldiers jeered at him as they approached to offer him wine. They called out, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Yeah. So I just, I, I, you said, is there anything you want to say? Say, yeah, the whole gospel, the whole gospel about this. And now these guys are out there mocking him, you know, mocking him for everything, mocking him for everything he's done since chapter four of Luke all the way through the gospel, mocking him for every healing he's done, mocking him for every preaching he's done, mocking him for every time he's fed them, mocking him for every time they sat at table with him because they were dishonest cowards. And they did the whole thing behind his back until they got him. They think they got him. And now they come out with everything that's been behind the scenes simmering in the gospel for us. Hmm. And Luke's laying this all out for us, right? Luke's laying out because Luke is going to be the one who is going to tell the story of Pentecost. Remember going back in our Bibles all the way back to, oh, I got to do it because we keep going back in Luke. So turn back with me in Luke all the way back to chapter 9, verse 51. Yep, I got it underlined. When the in days fact, my Bible just flipped there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> when the days drew near for him to be received up, 
to ascend. Why? Luke's going to write about that ascension and the importance of that. Then he set his face to Jerusalem. Yeah, because Luke understands the connection between what we're reading here in the in in uh, in the in the crucifixion account as a connection. This whole thing is connected to the culmination of all of this, which is going to be for Luke the ascension and ultimately Pentecost. Let's take a look at that very quickly in Acts of the Apostles, Acts of the Apostles, chapter one. This is, of course, after the resurrection, after Jesus has spent 40 days with his closest friends, and then he's about to ascend into heaven. And then uh, you can read that in in verses three and so forth. Verse six. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the father is fixed. This has been the question on their mind the whole time, right? He's going to Jerusalem. What's going to happen? Is am I going to his right and his left? Uh, they're going to kill him if he goes out there. What's he doing, right? Yeah. Is, is, are you going to finally do it, Lord? Are you going to finally restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons, which the father is fixed by his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So we always read this like, well, you know, you, look, you don't know the time or the day when the second coming is going to happen. This is not what Jesus says to them. He says, I'm not telling you right now when the kingdom is going to be reestablished. When you receive power from on high, then that's it, right? Well, when are they going to receive power from on high, right? When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witness. So the, Luke sees Pentecost very much as the reestablishment of the kingdom of, kingdom of Israel, in which the Spirit comes mightily upon the apostles as it had come upon Saul, as it come upon David, as it came upon Solomon. It's now going to come upon you so that you're going to be able to have dominion over God's people. People, start acting like kings because that's what you've been anointed to be. Jesus didn't go up on the cross for himself. He didn't have a public anointing among all of God's people on the cross for the sake of his own glory. He did it for you so that he might pour out his life into you and you might be restored as Adam and Eve before the fall in the image and likeness of God and be given back the dominion. And as a dominion, which is, which, ha- which has as its character, as its, as, 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 as its only known character, love to give our life for the beloved that others might live because God has given his life to us that we might live. Yeah. Annie, I'm way off your question, but I had to go off that whole thing. Well, I mean, how incredible too, when, and going back to the, the passage that, that we're reading here with the good thief, that it would be, I mean, it's just like, I keep thinking of um, all of the things that we've talked about, all of these stories of Jesus's travels to his death march to jerusalem and and how he keeps you know saying you guys aren't welcome at the banquet table and and he welcomes the sinners and the tax collectors and who is it that's going to join him in paradise but a criminal i mean it's just so fitting i think yeah it is it is that end in luke this is what the fathers of the church see in the crucifixion of christ is not what the jewish authorities see nor even what you might be seen as a Christian in the sense of Christ giving his life for us. They see that giving of his life in terms of Adam and Eve. They see it as a restoration of mankind to our original place at the right hand of the Father. Okay, let me read you uh, a couple of quotations from the first from St. John Chrysostom, and I got two nice quotes from St. Ephraim. 
St. John Chrysostom says, in the beginning, God, by the way, whose feast day was last Sunday in the Byzantine calendar. I didn't check your calendar. In the beginning, God shaped man and man was an image of the father and the son. God said, let us make man in our image and likeness. Again, when he wished to bring the thief into paradise, he immediately spoke the word and brought him in. Christ did not need to pray to do this, although he had kept all people after Adam from entering there. God put there the flaming sword to guard paradise. By his authority, Christ opened paradise and brought in the thief. So notice he begins with our image and likeness, right? And, and the restoration of that. And St. Ephraim takes us, as he usually does, to a whole nother level. All right, here we go. Listen to St. Ephraim. Because Adam touched the tree, he had to run to the fig. He became like the fig tree being clothed in its vesture. Adam, like some tree, blossomed with leaves. Then he came to that glorious tree of the cross, put on glory from it and acquired radiance from it, heard from it the truth that he would return to Eden once more. Adam had been naked and fair, but his, his, his diligent wife labored and made him a garment covered with stains. The garden, seeing him thus vile, drove him forth. Through Mary, Adam had another robe, which adorned the thief. And when he became resplendent at Christ's promise, the garden, looking on, embraced him in Adam's place. There came to, to, uh, there came to my ear from the scripture, which had been read, a word that caused me joy on the subject of the thief. It gave comfort to my soul amidst the multitude of its vices. Tell how he had, telling how he had compassion on the thief. Oh, may he bring me too into that garden at the sound of whose name I am overwhelmed by joy. My mind bursts its reins as it goes forth to contemplate Christ crucified. This is, uh, yeah, very, very, very beautiful. I'll add only this uh, really cool thing in the Byzantine tradition. And actually in the Roman Catholic tradition also, you'll notice if you have a large rosary that underneath Christ's feet, there's a little step there mm -hmm. because the Romans, when they crucified somebody, put a, a little shelf so that the person would struggle to keep themselves alive and suffer longer. But for us, the cross is Christ's throne. And of course, the throne of the king always has a footstool, right? right? He doesn't put his feet on the normal ground. He places his foot on the footstool. So that that thing which the Romans meant for suffering becomes Christ's revelation of his glory. Wow. So in the Byzantine tradition, that little footstool is made like three-dimensional. Yeah. It's made big so that you can really see it to say, this is, this is the King. Yeah. Jesus on the cross. And then particular to our gospel passage on the right hand side of Christ, it's always pointed up because the thief on his right went to heaven and the thief on his left went to hell. Wow. Yeah? That's so cool. Yeah. Only at the Institute of Catholic culture, you're going to get good stuff like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, shall we look at the epistle? Because it is so beautiful. I'm, I'm hoping you'll let me read the whole thing. All right. Go ahead. Okay, good. Colossians is, chapter one. Yeah. yeah. Colossians chapter one. We're starting with verse 12. Col Brothers Hold and on, sisters. I'm getting, oh, hold on. Okay. Lord have mercy, Annie. You know, if I can't get You know what? Her... You were shuffling through the old testament so fast, and I had to Was I that? had to keep up with you then. Colossians, is that in the um old testament or new testament? It's in the new. No. Okay. It's a All Saint right. Paul letter. Right after Philippians. Go right. eat popcorn. Right. There you go. It's right the before seed. Thessalonians. Okay. Colossians. Okay, here we go. Brothers and sisters. 
let us give thanks to the Father who has made you fit to share in the inheritance of the Holy Ones in light. Mm. He delivered us from the power of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him were created all things in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he himself might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things for him, making peace by the blood of his cross through him, whether those on earth or those in heaven. Mm. This is one of the most powerful and, uh, and, and beautiful hymns or passages in St. Paul's writings of Colossians. And there's so, there's so much here. I want to focus on one aspect because you can do a whole semester just on these a couple of passages yeah. on the incarnation of Christ. But notice how St. Paul is, is not only focused upon who Jesus is, but on in relationship then who we are. Yeah. yeah? yeah. And St. Paul's vision here goes back to his uh, moment of conversion, right? Remember when, when St. Paul is struck with light, he falls to the ground and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And of course, mm -hmm. who's, who is Paul or Saul persecuting? The, the church, church, right? Yeah. So in this moment, Paul realizes he has a vision. In fact, it, it says he was taken up to the third heaven, right? Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, St. Paul says. Now you can go back and, and listen, uh, take my brother's course on St. Paul. Um, and he saw things which he could not, which, which no man can speak of. He saw the glory of God. And St. Irenaeus says what? The glory of God is man fully alive. That is man transfigured, man divinized with the grace of God within him. When St. Paul saw, and he had his revelation of Jesus, what was shown to him was the fullness of Christ. Yeah, Christ, it, 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 I should say this, it was, he saw Christ the King in action. Mm -hmm. And what is Christ the King in action? Well, Ephesians chapter four, one of Father Hezekiah's favorite passages, keep your hand in Colossians, turn to me, with me to Ephesians chapter four. At the, when, when St. Paul talks about the ascension of Christ, verse chapter four, sorry, Ephesians chapter four, verse four. There is one body and one spirit, just as we are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father of us all, who is above all and through all and in all. Hello, doesn't that sound like Colossians? Yep. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it said, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Yeah. Mm. And so now we have the transformation. We have an understanding of what it means Christ ascended into heaven. Acts chapter one. He did so that he might be enthroned. Yeah, our human nature might begin to do what it was supposed to do. The feast of Christ the King is Christ the King's Christ the King in activity. 
Yeah, Christ the King exercising dominion. And what is his dominion? But that he has poured his life into us. He has made us Christ's. He has made us Christians. Now it's time that we begin to act also as Christians. The feast of Christ the King is your feast and my feast. And it's time that we realize this gift and begin to put it into action in our homes, in our workplaces, in our lives, in the voting booth, in every aspect of our life, Christians. Live as Christians. Live as Catholics. Not in fear of what somebody's going to say to you. They're going to crucify you. Do you expect any less? They crucified Christ. And in the midst of that crucifixion, he poured out his life for the life of the world. My brothers and sisters, we are called to do nothing less. To Christ our God, who is King of the universe, be glory both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Sunday Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.